0: it analyzes data in a way that I've never seen anything analyze data uh, because it's, it's so dumb and smart at the same time. But, but yes, uh, it's, 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 it's nothing is. I would ever consider submitting.
1: And but, it's also something that's difficult to perform, you know, perform a traditional CS yeah, yeah, computer system yeah, validation yeah. Um, right. within our, our regulated. We do ourselves um, look at and use machine learning to help push different paradigms of what we should set up within our expert system, but we don't um, use that. We use our own test dummy data. So we have used it in that way as well, Chad, where we've thrown and tried to think outside the box, but then we try to take that problem it's found, if it's legitimate and then code it in a way that is predictable.
2: Welcome to the BioTalk Unzipped podcast, where we unzip the stories behind medical progress by sharing the latest and greatest advances in biopharmaceuticals and medical technologies in a fun, entertaining, and enlightening format. And now your co-hosts, Gregory Austin and Dr. Chad Briscoe. Hello, and welcome to episode five of BioTalk Unzipped. I'm Gregory Austin, your host. I'm here with my wonderful co-host, Dr. Chad Briscoe. And today we have our next guest, Dr. Stephanie Passis-Farmer. Stephanie is a recognized bioanalytical expert in the area of discovery and regulated bioanalysis for pharmaceutical biologics and hybrid technologies, including antibody drug conjugates. She's gained insights over 20 years focused on bioanalysis operations in global biopharmaceutical companies, CROs, and consulting. Stephanie founded Ariadne Software in 2018 and led development of RedThread, an AI-enabled solution for challenges in bioanalytical data review. Prior to Ariadne Software, Stephanie created Biodata Solutions, a scientific advisor firm whose aim is to help sponsors advance early-stage molecules into potential new drugs with bioanalysis supports and regulatory compliance planning. Before that, she led a team of scientists at a global bioanalytical lab focused on supporting large molecule and antibody drug conjugates and various other roles in the field of bioanalysis. Stephanie earned her PhD and master's degrees with honors in pharmaceutical chemistry from the University of Kansas, go Jayhawks, and received (laughs) a bachelor's degree in chemistry from St. Mary's College of Notre Dame. Hi, Stephanie. Welcome. How are you?
1: Oh, thank you. Very well, thank you. How about yourself?
2: Uh doing well. Trying to stay warm in this uh, frigid Kansas air <laughs> that we're dealing with. That's uh, you know I'm gonna have to uh, have a trip to Boston later this week, and I'm gonna have to fly to Boston to warm up.
1: Yes, you will. Yes, you will. Especially as we talked about, it's warmer in our freezers than it is outside right now. So yes, it it's a, a balmy negative six. <laughs> exactly.
2: <laughs> so, so Chad, are you um, are you in North Carolina today?
0: I'm happy to be enjoying the North Carolina weather, yeah I was actually out <laughs> sh- I was actually out in shorts yesterday it wasn't it wasn't It wasn't shorts weather for North Carolina natives, but for a Michigan native, it was definitely shorts weather here well, well I did see 50s. someone
1: in shorts. I did see someone in shorts going to the grocery store yesterday here. I said, you must wow. be from Minnesota because this is insane
2: yeah no. <laughs> yep, for sure no, absolutely. So, yeah. so Stephanie, um, I wanted to start off by kind of diving into your journey into bioanalysis, and was curious, um, what made you pick pharmaceutical chemistry? You know, in graduate school, and and I probably know the second part of the answer to this question, but why KU?
1: Well, rock chalk is uh, all I have to say. I, I bleed, I bleed red and blue, nice. um, but uh, I actually chose bioanalysis. Um, I love taking things apart and putting them back together. And my graduate research graduate advisor was a specialist, not only in bioanalysis, but also in microfluidic devices. So I actually got to work in a clean room, but also I loved the uh, pharmaceutical application where I had originally wanted to go to med school. Yeah. And I felt like this is a nice way of marrying my, want to break things down and put them back together and also help meet unmet medical need. So it was really a combination of all those things. And Rock Chalk because I went to uh, my internship and undergrad at KU and fell in love with Lawrence to the point where um, I moved out to Philadelphia for work after my PhD and figured out a way to actually headquarters both of my companies back here in Lawrence now. So I am in that negative six degrees in Lawrence, Kansas as of today.
0: (laughs) But you're a California girl, right?
1: I am a native Californian, That's Southern Californian, so it's very difficult at <laughs> times. time. My, my, um, you know, pathetic Southern California blood doesn't know how to take these temperatures at all. Right.
0: Yeah.
2: Well, very good. Well, can you walk us, uh, you know, kind of through, you know, what brought you to where you are now, you know, just kind of through your career and give us a little bit of background.
1: I, I went the traditional pathway of going into large pharma traditional at that point, 20 years ago. Um, and, uh. I moved on from company to company, really looking for, now that I look back on it, the ability to make decisions and to problem solve and to help expedite drug development because I was getting frustrated in some of the larger, being a small cog in a large um, wheel, moving things forward. And I didn't realize that until about nine years ago where I was gainfully employed and quit and started my own consulting firm. And so uh, my journey through drug development was started in... Uh, more of a traditional approach and then went into the contract research organization uh, when those actually became some of the the larger areas of leading science actually, because we got to do a lot of the work that other people were outsourcing. Um, So I followed the work and the interesting work, but then I realized I also wanted to uh, lead my own team and and run my own company, which was not something I had anticipated when I first left graduate school.
0: Stephanie, one, one aspect that I, found interesting with you and, in uh, is that you went from Merck to a CRO. That's more common now, uh, as we see, uh, pharma reduce their, their bioanalytical teams. And we actually talked with Russ Wiener about that in our, in our previous, uh, one of our previous, uh, podcasts, but, uh, but while it's common now, it sure wasn't common then people must've probably thought you were crazy, right?
1: They did. And I did go from a, a Merck to a biotech to a CRO. Okay. So there was All a little right. biotech. A little in stepping stone little stepping stone. Um, I really followed the programs, to be honest, of where some of the growth and the cutting edge science was going on, which you would not think that was happening at a CRO, but it was at that point, um, because a lot of the uh, more difficult programs or the more interesting programs from large pharma were going to contract labs at that point. And I had also worked at BMS, where they took the outsourcing model on really early compared to others, yeah. Um, yeah. when I was there in 2008, they were outsourcing um, and working with overseas providers. And mm-hmm. so for me, it wasn't as weird of a jump. but you are yeah. absolutely correct. People thought I was insane for not going back to large pharma, um, but I did love the diversifying, um, the diversification that it provided me in the programs I could support rather than just one or two
0: right. within the but, large pharma right. unit. But anyways, you've, you've made a career out of doing, uh, making jumps that, uh, that people probably thought were crazy or they didn't understand and you were, <laughs> you were ahead of the game yeah. and, and I think we're going to get there. So I, you know, to talk about, uh, moving into uh, starting your own company a little bit.
1: Oh, thank you. But yes, I was, I was very much questioned when I made that decision.
2: So what, what were some of the things that inspired you to kind of break out and start your own company?
1: Well, the first thing that inspired me was I was actually working at a contract research organization, CRO, and people were asking me questions to help troubleshoot because I would, would emphasize with my team when I was running them, uh, the group there was to not only provide the data, but also if there were any issues to assist in troubleshooting and to really think in depth of the problems that could have occurred um, in the future, as well as um, maybe looking critically at their data and to really work as a a solution provider as well. And the some of the clients that I was working with, both large and small, um, appreciated that approach. And I didn't realize I was basically consulting for them at the time. And they had asked for assistance on other programs, but it wasn't ethical um, for me to do that within the current right. role that I had. Mm-hmm. And eventually I had enough of those requests that I decided I thought I was going to start my own lab. So I thought, well, I'll just stop and consult until I opened my own lab and then I just haven't stopped. So, uh, mm-hmm. it was really the want to try to do things differently. I was interested in starting a molecular lab, which now we all see cell and gene therapy is where things are at and mm-hmm. moving forward. So that was about nine, 10 years ago. So who
0: knows where do you feel I feel like I that was a missed opportunity.
1: Um, no, because I consciously made it. Uh, yeah. so if I had not, Consciously made that decision, then yes, running a lab as Chad, I, I, I mm-hmm. genuflect to you. Mm-hmm. I, it's a very okay. difficult job, especially in regulate the regulated field. Is. So yeah. I'd rather assist others in that growth mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and be a partner in that and a, and a thought leader behind it than actually do it myself. <laughs> so that's, that's a, whole nother, yeah. a whole nother thing to do that. So
0: without a doubt.
2: Absolutely. And then what led into Ariadne Software?
1: Uh, the volume of data that was eyeballs on spreadsheets um, mm. as a consultant and and it's it's just uh, it's overwhelming the amount of data that we have to review and audit by um just as i said eyeballs on spreadsheets or word documents and and i was sitting there it was christmas time many years ago and i had like the three screens up and all the papers printed out trying to understand how table one matched up with table 100 And my husband, who had been reading a book on AI, said, wouldn't that be great if there was a software that could do that for you? And I said, well, yeah, actually, that would be incredible. And there wasn't anything. So we decided, I decided to try to build it. And so that's where it came from.
0: So did you start with the idea that you were building it just to make your consulting business uh, stronger? Or did you start it with the idea of, hey, we're going to make another business out of this?
1: It's purely a tool for my consultants, for myself. It was selfish reasons. Um, yeah. I'm not saying I didn't think there was a market for it, mm-hmm. but we did some market testing and um, kind of presented it in front of the Land of Lakes group. Right. Actually I remember that. Like twice in a row because we mm-hmm. updated it just to pressure test. Um, we did put it in front of the agencies to let them know it existed. They'll never back anything up, of course. Disclaimer um, mm-hmm. not like I have some sort of rubber stamp, but really just put it in front of people to say, hey, is this something that the market needs? And it did. Um, and they responded well. And then the pandemic hit. So we, we still existed and, and worked in the background, but we transitioned um, to where we actually then grew it even stronger and built out more modules um, while that time
0: Okay. Well, I, I remember the first presentation, well, I don't, I guess maybe it was your first presentation on Land Lakes. I think it was, it was the first time I had seen the, the software and, and, and everybody in the room, I think it was like a, a lunch. It was either a lunch and learn or it was, a, I just remember we were eating <laughs> for what it's worth. <laughs> Cause I remember lots of good things about eating, but, uh, but I remember the, the presentation out with the heads were just blown, right? Like what, like, this is a tool we need in our labs. This, we, you know, the, this, this woman needs to continue to to push this software, because this, sort of, uh, this is the sort of thing we, we, we need in, uh, in our labs for checking data and, and looking at trends, picking up things that, that you don't pick up just by eyeballing it, right, that, that humans might miss. Uh, so, yeah, it was really, really exciting. And so I, I think it's exciting to have seen the software continue to grow in advance. So c- congratulations for that, for sure.
1: Oh, thank you very much.
2: That's great, and and for our audience, what, what is Red Thread? What does it actually do? Is it more focused on discovery or development, or is it? Can you use it either way?
1: You can use it either way. Um, right now, it is it is an auditing tool that uses AI. It is not machine learning, which is the one that's federally regulated, um, mm. and that you have to go through the almost a, a software as a medical device approval program. Um, it is uh, natural language processing, um, OCR um, technique, as well as basic expert system, where it will take in your data from your validation, your sample analysis, audit it according to the FDA requirements and EMA requirements for a validated assay. You can toggle some of the acceptance criteria, which would make it more applicable for a discovery level, but it really was written with regulated assays in mind, um, only because there's... It checks the data that I think some people assume that a limb system checks data, it, and it doesn't check data. It's, limbs are wonderful; they're needed. Um, we hate them, of course, because <laughs> they're so difficult at times. Um, it's a love-hate relationship, um, but it doesn't, quali- you know, do the quality control of your data set. Um, mm-hmm. You can um, flag things, but a human can always override it. So this one, actually, it's not meant to remove quality control. It is called a human augmented intelligence. It's meant to help the human do their job better and quicker. Um, and, and so that is really, uh, there is also a statistical, what we grew out um, after during the pandemic and some of their requests was actually statistical analysis. Basically, we're trying to take anything that's a manual process and automate it. Um, because eventually, even if it's not a pain now, it is my belief that anything that is an auto you know that is a manual process that can be automated is going to be preferred because of just the volume of data that comes to us as we grow as an industry and the speed we're expected to work at it's just not humanly possible to keep up with um non automated processes so that that's what the software is um it, it is built with the auditing side, especially it's, you've uh, actually scoped out and um, coded a a thought process, which is an amazing thing to think of. But if you go through all my consultants and all the data we've looked at it over all the years, it really is a, a huge force multiplier because now you have 40 consultants or 40 biomedical scientists looking at your data within 30 seconds to a minute, instead of just the one trying to QC it. So it's really meant to take The time we're reviewing, if you get eight minutes in a day to review data, I want someone or eight hours in a day to review data. I want someone to have instead of the seven hours reviewing data and the one hour to solve whatever issue they find, I really want to flip that on his head. It just takes you an hour to review the data. And so you have seven hours to either solve the problems or hopefully do something else because you don't have to spend all that time.
0: So, so I'm interested in how you built this. So uh, I understand, you know, you don't want to use the term machine learning because it, it, I guess it, it, in this that was new to me, but I'm here to learn. But I would uh, more classically consider what you're doing, machine learning. But this is either me showing what I do know or what I don't know. But what what is the learning aspect in your software? When I think of a traditional AI or machine learning, it's It's an iterative iterative process where as you as you use it, it learns and it improves and you have to train the model uh, and then the trained model is actually beneficial. So how is that uh, how is that uh, functioned, uh, you know, with your with your software? How does that work?
1: So so machine learning um, is its own its own beast and it's kind of there's supervised and unsupervised learning. And there's times where you don't know how it gets from point A to point B in its processing. Um, and this is from, I'm not a, cons- a full disclaimer. I'm a vigilante computer scientist. <laughs> I'm not a real computer scientist. <laughs> um, my last programming class was C++. So you can put into it can, can speak to still the useful. There. So still there. So useful. But, but um, so machine learning is something where it, in my understanding is that you don't really know how it gets from point A to point B, whereas our <laughs> system, right. we do. We do. We know how it gets. We've trained it to get there with um, the expert system is that yes, no point where you can write in. um, This is you see this data. The decision is this yes or no. Um, So that is the fundamental difference. And we know how it gets from one spot to another. And the reason why I believe and this is from the regulations, I'm not an FDA uh, regulator, but some of the concern is when you when you can't Predict where it's going to go, or even if you can predict and supervise, you don't know how it's getting from one place to another. That's where some of that regulation comes in, especially with yeah. yeah. and so that's why ours sidesteps that, um, as well as ours not being um, involved in making medical decisions. So those two things make it where um, it's not, it's an exempt approach. Um, but that is where many of the current um, programs are going with machine learning is that it really and then you have your supervised which you know let's say you if you're trying to tell your system to identify what a duck is this is a great one when it's visual you have a whole right, bunch of pictures right, of ducks. Okay. yeah it, what is a duck, what is a duck what is a duck what is a duck and you throw it a dog and it now learns that's not a dog that's not a duck right and so that's where supervised right and that takes mm-hmm. big data which as even pharma we don't really have big data. We don't have millions yeah. and millions and millions of things to show someone or show a system that can then help make it make decisions. Um, however, we do have that many pictures of an animal or people for self-driving cars. Um, unsupervised is where you just throw a whole bunch of pictures at it and it categorizes it and lo- likens them up and figures out itself that that is a duck.
0: Yeah. 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 I've played, I've played around with, with, of course, of chat GPT and just dumping a spreadsheet there with some data and just say you know analyze the data right and then uh, and it's and it's interesting actually what you get out of that and it sure isn't uh, it sure isn't an output that I'd uh, send send to a customer or send to you know <laughs> send to somebody on the on the back end of it but sometimes you can ask some questions and it and it uh, it does pull out some interesting feedback but it's more again it's more of a tool you use and you put your brain on it. Uh, then, then you know, and it, and it analyzes data in a way that I've never seen anything analyze data uh, because it's, it's so dumb and smart at the same time. But, but, uh, yes, it but it's, it's it nothing is. I would ever consider submitting.
1: And but, it's also something that's difficult to perform. You know, perform a traditional CS yeah, yeah, computer system yeah. validation um, right. within our our regulated. We do ourselves um, look at and use mm-hmm. machine learning to help push different paradigms of what we should set up within our expert system, but we don't um, use that. We use our own test dummy data. So we have used it in that way as well, Chad, where we've thrown and tried to think outside the box, but then we try to take that problem it's found if it's legitimate and then code it in a way that is predictable. So we can also have, you also don't, you lose IP. You don't have your IP if you don't know where it gets from one way to another, whereas ours is copyrightable. That's okay. even a My husband's an IP attorney, so he probably is cringing when he sees this. i just made up, work. like ESPN.
0: <laughs> he he gets paid to know those things. You don't you don't to know if it's copyrightable as a word or not. <laughs> it is now. It is okay. now. That's right. That's right. Well, we know nobody's going to be stealing your product. <laughs> <laughs> what 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 do you see is next for you with AI? Uh, I get. I'll throw two questions together here. Probably should. But what's next for you for AI with your software? Where do you see that going? And then, and then I'm curious, as, as somebody who was thrown around using AI, again, you were a pioneer, right? You were, you were using these terms before anybody, you know, before AI <laughs> was cool uh, and outside of the science fiction movies. But, but what do you do in your, in your daily life? How do, you, how do you use AI in your daily life?
1: Well, we, we still use AI, as, as I said, as a more simplest approach for the, the red thread and, and the stats programs yeah. that we have. Where we are moving into is the qPCR realm, the molecular okay. assays that currently yeah. have limited support um Mm -hmm. and definitely have no auditing support and then we also don't have the regulations behind it so it is a definite need and where we've seen consulting growth as well as growth in the industry so that's where i want to get a big push um i'm currently coming up with a business plan of how to um basically double my computer my um my software side of the company because I combined both companies because I thought that's a different discussion we can have. But I did combine both companies, but that was only for ease of running the company because it got to a point where having two that were growing at the same time was difficult for, for myself to, to run individually. Um, so we are coming up with a plan of how to grow and how to, to be ahead of the curve because we, we did have these ideas early on, but because we're a small shop, we don't want to be scooped. So how can we move in that molecular um, space? um, flow yeah. QPCR, DDPCR, um, to assist and not necessarily be a LIMS, but be a, a data auditing and, um, mm-hmm. review component that doesn't have right now. Yeah.
2: Cool. so understand. I'm going to be the, uh, the dumb non-scientist and ask the dumb question here. <laughs> uh, what does QPCR mean?
1: Um, it's a quantitative QPCR. Uh, it, um, it's what you use for. People can use it for monitoring both DNA and RNA. Um, you can use it for, let's say Moderna program, right? They have to use a QPCR for, um, their COVID vaccine that was out there. Cause they're trying to, they're delivering M- uh, MRNA for, um, COVID vaccine. Um, that a lot of the cell and gene therapy programs have to use this, um, even the whole cell analysis where you're, you're monitoring, you're not monitoring, you're changing the individual's genome or phenome, genotype, meaning the genetic material or phenotype, how it's presented, um, and, and the proteins that are available to fight diseases. When you're doing those altering down to that basic of a molecular level, um, you have a lot more requirements in monitoring it for safety and efficacy. And so whereas I have this visual which shows just back in the mass spec day, there's one assay one this way. And then there's now with molecular assays requirements in the cell gene therapy, it's this web of assays that feed to feed into the program for all the different aspects you have to monitor. You have to monitor the DNA, you have to monitor the RNA, which is that expression of the DNA. And then you have to go to the activity and the protein. It's just can be a mess. And so all the different and those platforms are not always validated to the level that mm-hmm. we're used to seeing. And the agency has given some some guidance, but really it's the industry moving forward with how they're leading from that grassroots effort um, without particular guidance. So it can be a little bit of a wild west. So that's where our consulting firm works with a lot of the companies to, to kind of to work with them to get it up within the spirit of the validation requirements. And we want to build that auditing tool. And we actually have a prototype that should be in beta testing um, this month into next month. Um, as well with one of our our partners.
0: Yeah, so PCR, Greg, PCR to me, that's kind of like what's old is new again. And and Mm -hmm. PCR is not a new technology, right? It's the way that we analyze DNA. But what's really changed in the industry is the modalities, so the different types of drugs. So when we think about those uh, gene therapies and cell therapy drugs, we need to do uh, new types of analysis or we need to apply the old types of analysis in new ways, and so uh, folks like uh, like like Russ, when we talked to Russ at Takeda, he's setting up a whole laboratory in a, in a major focus of that laboratory. Uh, I, we, I don't think we specifically talked about it. it, it must be PCR uh, because of the types of, of, of drugs that he's analyzing, and so uh, and so then we have all this data and we're doing, you know, we're applying the data in different ways, and so what, what I understand that Stephanie's doing is she's saying, hey, I've got this tool that analyzes the traditional data uh, from mass spectrometers and and immunoassays uh, in our field, but we don't have these tools or even these mindsets of how to look at PCR data in this new realm. Uh, And so, all right, hey, maybe we can uh, throw throw this piece of software at it. We don't we don't we're not real good at analyzing this data as it is. I, I just as an industry, I don't think we're mm-hmm. we're real good because we don't understand it. We don't fully. It's just not fully mature um, as some of these other technologies. So if we can, uh, I love this idea, Stephanie, that y- you know you as a smaller nimble company that's playing in this space, you can jump on this and you can give us a tool to to look at this PCR data. And and we find the PCR data when we start generating generate a lot of data right so there's gonna be a lot coming out a lot of people who who just haven't made they haven't built all their processes for years and years and years around looking at this data so really exciting stephanie uh, and uh, wish you the best of luck because again you'll move the industry forward with these tools (laughs) and you'll allow companies to to push forward which ultimately whenever we're talking in the pharmaceutical industry we're talking about the patients And so if Mm -hmm. we can pull these tools together and, and accelerate drug development and improve the quality, then we're, uh, we're just, yeah, we're just driving drugs and solutions forward for patients. So, so that is, uh, that's awesome. Really great.
1: Thank you.